Welcome back, my dear Thoughtvolutionists. I'm Stéphane Dubier, your guide on this journey of introspection and evolution. After a soul-nurturing hiatus, we are back for season two of Thoughtvolution. And my, oh my, how I've missed these conversations with you and my guests, my fellow seekers of truth and understanding. In our quest for enlightenment, we begin the season with a guest whose story will not only tuck at your heartstrings, but also ignite a flame within you. Meet Danielle Patrice, a resilient soul residing in the beautiful state of New Jersey, alongside her sons William and Walter. Danielle Patrice, a single parent, author, and wishful researcher at heart, always had a passion for gaining an understanding of the intricacies of the human mind. However, there was a point in her life when Danielle Patrice's own journey took an unexpected turn. She became a survivor, not just of life's challenges, but of the insidious darkness that is domestic abuse. As an author, Danielle Patrice courageously transcribed her pain into words, shedding light on the shadows that too often remain unseen. But what sets her apart is her determination to delve into the very heart of her trauma. Not just as a lucky survivor, but as a seeker of answers. In this episode, Danielle Patrice unravels her own story, a narrative woven with threats of pain and overcoming. But it doesn't end there. Through the lens of her experience, she ventured into the realm of neuroscience, alongside her mentor and an online research academy, seeking to uncover the causes and understandings of domestic violence. Before we dive into Danielle Patrice's journey, let's pause to consider some stark facts about domestic violence. It's not just statistics. These are the echoes of silent battles fought behind closed doors, battles that Danielle Patrice and countless others have faced. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, more than 10 million adults experience domestic violence each year. One in four women and one in 10 men experience sexual violence, physical violence, and or stalking by an intimate partner during their lifetime. Now, my dear Thoughtvolutionists, I urge you to prepare your hearts for what follows is not merely a recounting of pain, but a revelation of strength and the indomitable spirit that seeks answers in the face of darkness. Join us as we navigate the depths of the human psyche, exploring the truth about domestic abuse and bask in the flicker of both darkness and light that keeps Danielle Patrice on this unyielding quest for understanding. This is Thoughtvolution, the podcast where the thoughts of others meet evolving minds. And today, Danielle Patrice invites us to join her in the sacred space where pain transforms into knowledge and resilience becomes a beacon for those still navigating the shadows. Stay with us as we embark on this profound journey into the heart of the human experience. Let's start this episode with a trigger warning, because this episode contains discussions about domestic abuse, which may be distressing for some of our listeners. Listener discretion is advised, and we encourage you to prioritize your mental well-being. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, please seek support from local resources or contact a helpline, or contact us and we will get you in touch with somebody who can help. Thank you. Danielle Patrice, I am 
So honored to have you here today to talk about something that may cut a little deep for a whole lot of people out there. So please take the trigger warning seriously. If this is something that you are a little sensitive to, we don't want to hurt anybody, you might want to skip this episode. My first question for you, Danielle Patrice, as like a little introductory question, and to start off on a lighter note, is if you were to create a time capsule representing your life up to this point, what items would you include and what do they symbolize? My gosh, that's such a good question. I would say a lot of the music from 80s, 90s, the music I cherish from those time periods, I believe it, the musicianship, the amazing lyrics and, and the catchy pop music, some of it, I would definitely put that in my time caps. So I think just the whole essence of the 90s and 80s culture, I would probably just capsulate uh, just because I hold that time period so dear to myself, to my to my heart. Let's see, I would also, some of the things that I, I love doing, like writing, some of my poetry that I, I don't have anymore, but I used to have some. And I think that that would also work towards my creativity or just, you know, just to look back and see who I was at certain parts or certain times of my life and who I am today. So I think mainly my creativity and the music. I love that. I think those are, those are great things as keepsakes for the next generation. I mean, the eighties and nineties in general, I'm, I'm a big fan of that time period as well. (laughs) So I'm a little guilty there. Now, when we talk about time periods, can you take us back to perhaps the beginning of your story? What were the early signs of the challenges you faced in life? Mm, I feel for me, when I think of, especially early 90s, some of my earlier memories were listening to the radio with my mother and, you know, either going for a drive with the car down, the air conditioner on, and just listening to the music playing, you know, and Music definitely takes a part of my life because in the midst of, you know, watching some of the amazing shows that came on at that time or listening to music, that there was a lot of dysfunction in my family. You know, there was a lot of arguments. Uh, I used to live with my grandmother and relatives, aunts, uncles, cousins. So it was a full house, literally. And sometimes that comes with a lot of clashing personalities. And I was the youngest you know, child in the house or the only child at that point. And so seeing a lot of dysfunction, a lot of arguments uh, that really kind of, I feel, shaped my personality a little bit back then where, you know, I really, I didn't like that, all that chaos. I didn't like seeing the arguing, you know, constantly or hearing, you know, have the cops come over to the house because, you know, people are fighting in the house. So, you know, that really shaped me you know, seeing that when I was younger, a lot of it also, I had a, a relative who was abusive to different women in his life. And I would hear different stories and, you know, certain stories I remember where you know, my mother is helping one of his uh, children's mothers and, and different things are happening where another child's mother is coming in and getting upset about what he's done. And it's just, you know, hearing that was very upsetting. You know, it was like, I love my my relative, but at the same time, these were things that I don't think I've truly understood. And, you know, looking back on that, there's like little, inc- little increments that lead to where my life turned. As the years gone by and throughout the time of college, because I would say that's when it really took a trip for me. You know, my mother, unfortunately, she uh, committed suicide uh, six weeks after I graduated from college. 
And my mother had paranoid schizophrenia. So, you know, uh, actually it's bipolar paranoid schizophrenia. And, and the thing was that I, you know, you have an inkling something is going on. But you just don't know what. And unfortunately, my mother was not diagnosed until I think it was too late. And around that time, while I was in college is when I first met my former abuser. Because I wanted to pursue in college, I wanted to pursue music and TV, film, radio, the whole nine. Like I said, I love creativity. And I I felt that going to college and having this life, this new life or beginning to start life, like I'm ready to to explore the world. I'm ready to, you know, just do big things. That's, That's the best way I can describe it at that time. And then everything kept crashing down with the loss of my mother. Throughout my collegiate career, and when I'm meeting my uh, user, my ex-husband at the time, we met in Spanish class. And when we met, we met at a time where, you know, it was, the gas prices were up. Everything was just very <laughs> expensive. And we finally found, like, camaraderie in that. And, and the thing is, is that we found, because I was working at a place that was kind of expensive, a restaurant where it's like, oh, that place is expensive. And I chuckled at that. Just something, just something little that I just found amusing. And, and then we ended up becoming good friends throughout that time. And he would, he was the kind of person that would walk me to my class. We weren't dating at the time, but it was like, he was you know, walking me to my class. He would help me fix my car. And yet at that time, you couldn't tell me what kind of person he was. You couldn't tell me the kind of, you know, if he was going to be this, I, I was had to say this monster. And so for me, it was just, I really enjoyed our friendship. And I enjoyed getting to know him or, and, or thinking I was getting to know him. And like I said, and things changed. I would say to when my mother's passing, things changed after that. Uh, I say the dynamic because the way that I was before, where I was just ready to take on the world and ready to explore and, you know, have all these plans that I had, everything changed. What I see here is somebody who goes through a tremendous amount of pain and Losing a loved one is always hard, especially when it's somebody as as close as immediate family like your mom. How did he react and how did he act toward you during that time when you really needed him most? That's a good question. Because we started off as friends and that even during the time that my mother's uh, passed, the day after her passing, and I remember calling him. And I remember saying, like, please come over. I need you to come over. My mother's passed, you know. And so I had a lot of friends and my family was flying in from New Jersey to Tennessee. And he would come over. He would, you know, he would spend time. But he didn't know the story of my mother because I, my mother and I weren't the, on the best terms. But I think that he was learning more about me on a deeper level. And so I think with him, he was there. And he would come over every day. And actually, he was coming over when my family would come over and they got to know him. And at the time, he was uh, dating another woman. And it was just like uh, they were both, you know, come over and it, it was everything was fine. Like it was just the generosity and just being there, being a great friend during that time. And, and you know, we ended up going back to New Jersey for the funeral and whatnot. And I ended up, I was still living in Tennessee at the time. When I came back, after, like months after the funeral, he was the first person I called and said, hey, I'm back in town. And I mean, we just, he was my driving partner the same way also that my mother used to take drives and, you know, have a ball listening to music that was kind of similar. As I look back on it now, it was kind of similar, same thing, you know, just 
hey, we're having fun, we're listening to music, we're, you know, hey, what are we going to do? It's just like two good friends hanging out. And I think that changed when I was planning to move back to either New Jersey, like definitely moved to the East Coast. I wasn't living in New Jersey at the time. I was planning to move back though. And I felt that it's like, hey, I need to, you know, get out of here and I'm trying to figure out what to do because I originally wanted to go to grad school and, and live in California with my father, but that didn't work out. So I said, you know, I want to move. I want to go back to the East Coast where I felt cared for. He said, hey, you know what? I'm taking a road trip back up there as well. Uh, so back to the East. And so, you know, how about you come with me? I said, okay, you know, it was great. And then I found out later on that he actually liked me. And I didn't look at him that way. And he's like, no, y'all need to start dating and whatnot. And I'm like, so I ended up asking him about this. And I said, uh, hey, your cousin told me that you're actually like, you actually have feelings for me. Yeah, you're dating us. He said, yeah, that's true. And I said, well, wait about your girlfriend. And like I said, I have to take ownership in that because I've definitely felt like I was being naive listening. Like, I, okay, I see that you're with this person. Okay. And then it's like, well, we're not really together. You know, we, you know, she's there temporarily. There comes the excuses. And even though like it's right in front of my face, it's like, well, why would he lie? Why would he lie about that? So I believed it. And then we started falling for one another while on this road trip and started, you know, dating slowly but surely. And I have to I have to say, during that time, while I was grieving, that was the first time I felt unsafe with someone. And I and I felt like I never really like I've had family, you know, where, you know, different, you know, chaos situations are happening or chaotic situations. But it's not like I didn't feel unsafe, but to really feel unsafe around someone of a love interest or someone that you're really getting to know, it, it was really startling because I went to his his area where he's from and not being in an area where I'm, I'm I don't say I know anybody, I don't know anybody at this town. On top of that, I don't know how to get out of this town. So I felt very vulnerable in that position. And then I think there were times where I, I will say he could have taken that for granted because there was a lot of time there was different, different little spats here and there. And I'm being left with his cousin while he's running around in the area doing God knows what. And we were just dating at the time. So it, I, I'd say that it was, um, I was very dependent on him during that time because he was someone that I was close to. So do you believe that this feeling of being unsafe and being vulnerable and this reliance on him was something that came exclusively because of you losing your mom and you needing a friend and you needing somebody in your life? Or do you think that he perhaps created this environment for you and took advantage of you in that vulnerable state? How how would you interpret the early stages of that relationship? Do you feel that it was genuine? Do you feel that you had blinders on? Were there perhaps early warning signs even that early on in the relationship? I mean, you mentioned that he was running around doing who knows what, not keeping you necessarily in the loop about everything that was going on in his life, kind of also brushing off this previous relationship. Do you feel like you were blindsided a little bit or do you think that it was genuine at first? Well, I... Uh, to answer your first question, I definitely want to say there was a lot of factors that came into play 
that allowed him to take advantage. So what I mean by that is when my mother passed, there was a lot of issues with my family. And part of that was, uh, so my mother used to work at a particular uh, convenience store and this place, basically, if there was a, it was a non-exclusivity law a clause, meaning that if this person commits suicide, that it does not affect a, like a, pretty much a payout. And so I was able to collect on that. And in the midst of, or as I'll say after the funeral, money was not discussed. And then all of a sudden, family members wanted their money back. Hey, you got to pay me back for the funeral. You got to pay me back for this. And it was just, I mean, the way that things were handled was disgusting. Or, you know, hey, you you have to pay me back for when I uh, bought you sneakers went out when you were 13. Like things of that, like it was becoming greedy. And it made me scale away from relatives. You know, it was about the money. And then uh, my father, who I was, as I said, I wanted to move to California to, you know, go to grad school. Two months after my mother's passing, you know, well, you need to move on. You need to move on. And my mother and my father were not, you know, they were definitely not on good terms. But it was just the the callousness where, you know, it just didn't care that, you know, I lost my mother. I was raised by a single parent and I was not raised by, by my father. So it was disheartening to hear my own father tell me that I need to move on. And it just did not consider my feelings about it. So those things into, that took place. And then while my ex-husband, when he was starting to really court me and was telling my family, hey, I want to marry Danielle and yeah, I want your blessing. And then I heard a relative completely obliterate my character and destroying my character and just I'm mean, really chewing my character out, talking really bad about me. And I heard a piece of it. And, you know, and it was just the fact of my family members are sitting here. Basically, he practically handed me to him by sitting here and letting him know by saying all these vicious things about me and talking about what kind of person I am to say, we're not going to protect her. And even in those those times, my husband was that knight in shining armor who became my protector during those or those arguments with my relatives. And, and so it was really interesting, the turn of events, how this man was my protector and against my relatives. However, it changed, I'll say, during the arguments because I was with him and pretty much isolated myself away from it, you know, because I, I was not dealing with any relatives at that point. And so I was specifically with him. We was just like, it was almost like a dynamic duo, really being together constantly all the time. And so I feel with that because we it was already the isolation in place. It was already different factors in place allowed. It started the emotional abuse because I'll say this in the beginning. It was, you know, it, I did feel like it was like a, a love bombing in the beginning. And I did. I thought it was genuine and I felt it was genuine. But I did see like little spats, little little spurts of like the name calling just a little bit. It wasn't full throttle, but it was I could hear the different things or uh the way he talked to me at different points. So it, it was it was thrown in. So I, I'll say that. When was the first time that it turned into more than just a little name calling? What were the early indications that this was going to an even more gruesome place? The night before we got married. So I had my first son in June of, of that year. And because I would go back and forth to back to Tennessee and New Jersey because I've just the same thing, going back and forth with him. 
And so I would leave to go back to whether I was with relatives or going back to my own place. And so when I got pregnant, I ended up having to do things on my own while he had his own mental situation going on. And during that time, he was he came back up here with me when I had my son and we ended up living together in my apartment up here. And so the, the pastor of the church basically said, who I knew for a long time, said, hey, look, you guys got to get married. You can't stay here unless you get married. We don't believe in shacking up. So decided, okay, we're already talking about getting married. So we're getting married. The night before we got into some some argument, and I, I can't even remember what it was about, but I just remember him pinning me down and saying, now I can do whatever I want to you because you're my wife now. What went through your head? And I mean, obviously you still went through with the wedding, you know, something that we often see represented in movies when the subject of domestic abuse is, is explained is that the abuser will do something terrible and then come and apologize, explain that it was a one-time thing, it's never going to happen again. How did you feel when the first incident happened? How did he deal with it the next day? And how did you perceive him dealing with it the next day? Well, I'll say I was scared out of my mind because I did not know what to expect. That Again, that was the first time, and it was, for me, a state of shock. And also, how do I get out of this? You know, my original protector was my mother, no matter how long, you know, we didn't get along all the time, but she was my protector. How do I get out of this type of situation? And I did not know how to get out of it. So it was just like going through with it the next day. And not as if that I didn't re like remember or I didn't forget about it. It was just like, just try to make this work or, you know, or I, I want to say, I feel like he apologized. But again, this is like, I'm not remember everything at that point, but I know we went through with it and just trying to get on with the day, trying to put on that smile and just trying to not cry, to be honest, because it was just a lot of emotions anyway. You know, not having my mother there, not having the full support, not just not having what I felt a wedding should be. And then having this on top of that. So it was just like, okay, we're going to get through this and, and. I think it was he was also in that way getting through it. And it, I think that's the best thing I can describe is trying to get through the day. Now, obviously, you made it through that day. What was the timing like between that first incident and the next one and the one after that? How did it escalate? The first incident was three weeks after the, the wedding. And I just remember him running out of the room. I think we were arguing about some things and running out of the room and pushing me against the wall. And he ripped the left sleeve of my shirt, which was my mother's shirt that I was wearing because he didn't want me to leave. And I want to say, I don't even remember like all of the time. Some of, I may have blocked out, but I feel like it was a reoccurring of arguments and, and fighting. And, you know, I just remember him almost like trying to barricade me, like trying to pin me down or just like trying to like wouldn't let me breathe, wouldn't let me like get out of my space, my personal space. But it, and it, I would say it took a, a year's time before then the first restraining order happened. And I want to go into this because this particular incident, my husband, he, I ended up introducing a lot of people where I lived who basically a group of women who 
they had an organization and also where the church is putting the pastor because of, we have mutual relatives and whatnot. And throughout this time, I ended up having, ended up meeting different people and befriending people. And one of the things is that while we were going through all of this, there was also a lot of gossip being exchanged between them because one of the things that, in my personal opinion, I felt that, again, there was a lot of bad blood, not only between me and my family, but also between this pastor's family and my family as well, because there were children involved in that situation. So I felt he was able to take advantage of that and vent to them about what was going on in our marriage. And then they were exchanged, well, you know, that that family is this way and this family is that way. So I felt that the first incident, it was told by, this is what I am finding out, that this particular woman in this church told, well, you need to go get a restraining order. And he took my son for four days without letting me, like I had no idea what was going on because we were, we were arguing, fighting, and... I had no idea what was going on. And I remember going to the courts because I remember, and I also remember the the police calling me, telling me that there was a restraining order in place, having to get the restraining order. It was like a whirlwind. And because at this point I ended up talking to my family again and I felt like it was the scariest thing that I have had to encounter because I'm not understanding what's going on. You're having this restraining order. I'm trying to figure out where's my son. And then I having to approach the judge and it was just, again, it was a world where I didn't know what to expect. And I think one thing that kicked into high gear is my aunt saying to me, uh, say, hey, you, like, you didn't stand up for yourself. You didn't speak up. And so I said, I want an emergency hearing. I think that kind of kicked me out of it. It's like, I don't need an emergency hearing. And I need to tell him like, look, I am my son's main caregiver while he works. And my, uh, I, I always say my hero who was at the domestic violence uh, department in the Superior Court, Sue was the one that got things kicked back in, in high gear and said, you know, realize that that I'm one, a DV victim. And did not, and I'll say this, I didn't categorize myself at that point as that, you know, I just thought this was a couple fighting, you know, and didn't really know what I was getting myself into as a as a newly married woman. So I didn't look at it as a, a domestic violence victim at that point. And so when I explained it, what's happening and all the fighting that's, that's, that's uh, taking place, and I'm saying that this is my son, he's taking my son, I'm his main caregiver. My son at that point had some some di- situations going on with his health that he needed to be taken care of. And Sue, what she did was allow me to, one, counteract that restraining order that he had against me. And I did a, a restraining order against him as well. And two, she called his family and said, you have until 7.30 to bring that child back here. And if you don't bring this child back, you're going to be arrested. And that's when things started really trying to turn around because it was like he was villainizing me. And I'm sitting here fighting to you to get away from me at points. And you're sitting here, pu- and now you're putting restraining orders in, into play. You're putting courts into play. And it is very scary to have to encounter, especially your first time. So for me to have to go through that and to have this, this experience and then have this advocate, this woman advocating for me saying, no, she's a victim here. This is what's happening. And th- so, and it led to further, I'll say ultimately led to seven restraining orders that I had against him. Now, clearly he tried to use the children as a pawn, which from what I've read is a is a common occurrence 
in domestic violence families that the the children end up kind of being dragged into the situation would he ever show any violence toward your children i would say as there's a couple of instances that i can recall yes where and and i'll say this like uh I remember we was going to a store. We were going to like a Staples or whatnot. I think we were arguing about something. And he was trying to push my older son. He's like, man, move, like, move, like, walk. And he pushed him and he fell. And I got so upset. I was like, don't do that. Like, you know, yelling at him. It's like, you don't do that to him. And I remember him later on apologizing. You know, and it was just, I was so angry about that. It's like, you know, like, what are you doing? And then I remember another incident we were arguing. He was in the middle of braiding my younger son's hair. And he was pulling his hair. I mean, luckily, my son, like, he was an infant at that time. He, so he wasn't really, you know, he was, I don't think he thought much of it as a baby, you know, but I do remember some incidents like that. Now, I, I will say that there will come times where I did end up calling um, CPS, what we call New Jersey DCPMP, because there were certain instances like uh, the people that he was around. And there was a time where we had one week on, one week off visitation for each other, for our kids. And I would have my kids in school on time. They're together and everything else. And then the next week, the kids aren't in school at the same time. They're not, you know, they bring them to school at random times. You know, my son is having rashes and where he shouldn't have had rashes, you know, where diapers. And I've had to, you know, contact CPS. Like, what is going on over there? You know, but then he would also weaponize it at the same time. Because there were a couple of incidents where my son, uh, he would run around, my older one, he would run around, and my younger one, they would run around because they're kids. And they accidentally hit them, they hit their head on, on something. And so it's like, oh, I'm going to call. So it was almost like a tit for tat. And, but my thing was, I, I'm not trying to do this chess war. I'm trying to, you know, really trying to take care of my children and, and put a stop to this. You just have a family. And it was, it seemed like it was, his way of having a family was being chaotic like this. So yeah, he definitely used them with those instances. And also he would keep them out for hours at a, at a time. And I had a, and wondering where my children were and wondering why they're out so late. Why are they, you know, at this person's house, you know, until five o'clock in the morning or until four o'clock. It was just some of those in the early years, some of those in the later years that really, I, I just, some things you just can't, you can't grapple. You can't grasp, like, why would you do that kind of things? Now, all these things that you had to experience, how did all of that affect your own mental health? And how did you prioritize your well-being throughout this horrifying journey? It was hope. I felt hopelessness. But I had to keep, I had to keep going, you know, for my children. I felt like, and there was times where I felt powerless. There was times I didn't know who to trust or how to trust people. I'll say at times different escapism where it was like watching TV for hours or talking to other people who I knew were my friends, like uh, that he didn't know or friends that I, you know, known from childhood or whatnot. And I knew that they weren't going to go back to him and and telling telling him what I've explained. There were times that I would have to reach out to whomever to ask for help, whether, you know, it was friends, like family friends, whether it was advocates, whomever, you know, whether it was the hotline, you know, asking for help, screaming for help, you know, because I really did not know how to get out of this situation. 
it almost felt like he, the way that he had, because I didn't have the support and I didn't have the help that he had his family who were completely in cahoots with him. You know, he had everybody believing whatever type of narrative that he portrayed about me. There are times where I felt trapped and this was before COVID. So uh, there were times that I just felt like I did not know how to get through this, but definitely trying to document things in my, you know, to myself, trying to, you know, definitely keep talking about it. I think that was one of the biggest things to keep talking about it, to not, to try not to internalize is that know that something's wrong here, that there's something, there's something wrong in this situation, there's something wrong with him, there's something wrong, how everything is, is coming about and trying to figure out what to do, trying to figure out, you know, also what my future is, trying to figure out well, how to, how to even have a future. So through those years, I mean, it was extremely difficult or even trying to work, you know, where I lost my job because of different situations with him, you know, where I couldn't get to work, you know, or, you know, just everything that I tried to build, he tore down, he sabotaged and just tore it down constantly. So it was constant rebuilding and trying to figure ways to rebuild again and again and again. But it was, it was trying to get through and survive. And I, I say for me as a well-being, what was that? Because I sure was not thinking well-being. I was tunnel vision trying to survive, trying to figure out how to, how to survive, how to stay alive in, in this situation, trying not to ignite whatever was about to happen and, and really have to be on guard, waiting or anticipating when, and I would call him the devil, when the devil would show. Throughout all of this, there were several events or instances that that kind of stand out. And you mentioned to me that you would like to talk about a few particular times where he caused you great harm. Can you talk us talk to us about that? Yes. So January fifth, twenty sixteen. That day was just oh I, I mean it was a crazy, crazy day. I remember with him just being argumentative. And, 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 you know, the thing is, is that for me, what I think about looking back is that when you have someone that has a natural anger, you know, there's a range that you can go, but I feel like when there's other things, maybe those are substances or maybe there's some issues with that person. I do feel like the range is a lot larger. I, I feel like that day he was just, I mean, it was like, he was talking to me again, destroying, like t- destroying me. Like, you're talking about how I had C-sections for, you know, and trying to demean that because I had emergency C-sections. You know, you're trying to demean me as a person. And some of the things I don't like remember exactly, but I remember like him, like just trying to harp on me and like, and we're arguing and whatnot. And there was another person there. Uh, he, he was saying with a lot of older women, like 50s and uh, 60s and 70s, like older women, especially that came from this church. She was over our house and it was just him trying to, I don't know if he wanted to consider himself impressing her or, but he was just, just downright disrespectful and just treating me like trash and just, you know, talking about me to the, to the point where the woman said, all right, that's enough. And he's smirking and laughing about it. Later that evening, you know, he's trying to apologize and whatnot. And I do remember like, I was going to watch this movie. Why did I get married? About Tyler Perry's movie. And at the point, I just really didn't, you know, someone is disrespecting you to that point. I don't want to hear what you really have to say. And we ended up getting into this argument. And 
one thing I know, I remember him trying to approach me. And one of the things that he, his move was to pin me down. And so I want to set the scene that he did this while I was pregnant. He's done this multiple times. So it didn't matter what condition I was in. It was like he loved to pin me down. And I remember I had a, there was a bottle and I had, you know, tried to hit it, like hit the wall with it, like get away from me. It didn't break, but it was just like, get away from me at this point. I, I was just sick of it. And him, I remember him grabbing me. And again, I remember him putting me down and it's, I remember him like fighting. We were fighting. And then I hear something. He goes to the kitchen. I'm hearing like some, like the metal in the kitchen. And now he gets the butcher knife and I'm like trying to run to the, to the door. And I think from what I remember, I remember him pulling me back down. I remember having this, this yellow shirt and he pulls me back down and he locks the door and he has this butcher knife to my neck. And I have to stay very calm at this point because I don't know what, you know, how far this is going to go. I don't know if I'm going to lose my life this night. And I remember him, you know, having this knife and then somehow I'm standing up and he has this knife pointing to my face. And I think, you know, the woman that was there, she tried to calm him down. And he's like, well, do you want to divorce me? And I'm like, put the knife down. And he puts it down and finally gives it to her. And I pushed him out of the way. I just kind of pushed him so hard just to get him out of my way. And just, I ended up trying to get out of that apartment because I just did not, I'm like, this is crazy. This is insane. You know, and end up fighting again, fighting more. It was just like, it was never ending. And so he picks up a, uh, picks up an iron. And I mean, the iron that you iron with your clothes. This is the dead of winter. I have no coat on, no shoes, no socks. Just have whatever's on my shirt and top. And he's chasing me with this iron like he's going to ha- like bash me. And I run out this door and he's right behind me. And I ended up running on this hill. And I just remember hearing go zigzag. And I went zigzag and ran. And I'm screaming for help. And I run to an old friend's house who I actually went to high school with. And I'm banging on the door. And she's seeing me in this disarray. You know, my hair is all over the place. Um, she's saying I have these like, scratches, like it looked like Wolverine scratched me on my chest. I just looked tattered and I'm like, please help me, help me. And I just remember like her, I think her, their friends, one of the friends called the police at the time. And the police, they came and then they took us both to the, to the station. And the thing was the same person who was there that night also lied and said that there was no knife that night. And so they were looking at me as the suspect and looking at me as now. So now I'm being considered as a victim defendant, which is someone, again, fighting for their life. And now you're getting possibly getting press charges or going to jail, these kind of things. So now I'm dealing with this situation. Meanwhile, this man is sitting here. They're not talking about bail for him. They're not talking about, oh, I may be, he may be arrested. And he was also able to file a restraining order against me. And when you get a restraining order, whoever gets the restraining order first, especially in New Jersey, you get to have the house, you have the kids, you have all of that. And I had to go back to my family once again. And so that was a very hard time in my life because that's where the on again, off again, meaning one week on, one week off with my children and having to to fight that, you know, in the courts again. Meanwhile, this person is the same person who is wearing stop domestic violence bracelets, you know, and is pretending to be this victim. There was also another occurrence where, you know, 
we did, we both got arrested and he's playing gospel music. Well, I'm sitting here, I mean, just astonished because of, you know, the fact that this is the situation happening again. The last hurrah, the last incident was when my, back in 2018, and basically had my children, oh, my oldest son out till four o'clock in the morning. And then sort of another argument and, uh, you know, that you have my children out. And of course, I confronted him that they basically he was with his mistress and was cheating. And so this is when he blew his gasket. And at the time, my youngest child was four. You know, he, he we were um, laying on the couch, sleep. And he heard the commotion. And once again, my son was able to pin me down. And he, my son is coming towards me. And I said, you know, I had to say, stay behind. Stay, stay, stay back, stay back. Don't come in here. And he's watching me, you know, and he's trying to, as my husband is pinning me down or like, you know, it's also pinning me against the wall and, and things of that sort and yelling in my face and we're arguing back and forth. And then, you know, he's calling me all types of names. And I remember him saying, like, I could kill you, bitch. I can kill you. And he's and I remember saying that if it wasn't for this third person who was back at this house again this night, that, you know, it would have turned out differently. And so he told me he was going to kill me. And my son, my youngest one, he was raised his hands while during this argument. And, you know, it was almost like he wanted one of us to pick him up. And it would kind of, it wouldn't be as intense as if, you know, we were, it was me and him, but it was almost as if, you know, like kind of trying to deescalate. And then the last really snapped me out of this was when he said, I can kill you with my bare hands. And, and he's fronted my, this is, I'm sitting down, my son, my youngest son is sitting next to me and the other person is right next to my son. And he said, I kill you with my bare hands. And he's actually making this motion towards me as if he's going to choke me and try to kill me. And then my my son is staring at him. He said, I can't do it because he's watching me. And at that point, it was like, I don't care if I have to crawl out of this marriage. I'm done. And, you know, it was like my child saved my life. And, and with that, my son, you know, if I couldn't do it for myself, I damn sure was going to do it for my children and, and have that strength as a mother. Like I got this, this has got to end. And it was no longer trying to help my family or him or just being this, this traditional marriage. It was, this was self-preservation. I got to protect me and mine at this point. And at the time I thought, okay, thank God my seven-year-old who, you know, was asleep. I thought, thank God he fell asleep. Later found out that he forced himself to sleep because he was so scared. And so, you know, and that's what led to the seventh restraining order. That's what also led to uh, CPS also getting involved and also which led me to getting my strength and filing for my divorce and, and leading to everything. You described this image of you clawing your way out of this. If we have somebody listening who is still very much in a relationship that has turned abusive what would be your word of advice to that person? The first thing I would say is you have to protect yourself. And what that means is you need to file police reports. You need to have all types of evidence. Because even though I don't go into all the, the details and say everything word for word, you're going to have to prove, overprove that you are a victim in this situation. And you're going to have to contact and be as loud as possible with you're going to have to contact your courts. You're going to have to contact the, the shelters. You're going to have to contact anybody who is willing to listen. And you're going to have to show proof. If you can have pictures, 
if you can send it to yourself, if you can, you know, make sure like if you're trying to leave, get documentation, your everything that you think you would need to leave, that you think you need, make sure you have a place to put it and that you can give it to someone you care for, someone that you can trust, find a way to protect yourself and make sure you can have a safe escape for you, for your children, for your family, whomever. Because I'll say this, there were people that really, that thought that I was going to be killed and was scared for my life. So you have to protect yourself. The divorce was not the final chapter of your domestic violence story because you actually took it a step further. You you wanted to dig deeper. You wanted to find out more about the roots of this. Could you elaborate on the specific areas of neuroscience that you explored in relation to domestic violence? And what got you so interested in learning even more about this? So, no, the divorce wasn't the end-all be-all. Uh, because in the midst of that, my family faced homelessness, uh, where we lived in the bottom of a basement, of a business basement, and trying to get stability, some housing stability. And also having, again, going through the divorce as well. I would say that what led to this is really uh, after really seeing and stepping out of that tunnel and seeing, wow, I really went through all of this as I'm naming the situations that made me to start advocating for myself as a motivational speaker. And I talked about my my story, you know, amongst groups, amongst, you know, uh, organizations, amongst politicians and wanting to get to change the legislation. And a lot of it, I felt, was met with sympathy. A lot of it was, I'll pray for you and whatnot. But it wasn't the change that I wanted to, you know, I want you to be charged and we got to do something about this. So during COVID, I, you know, with all the time we all had, you know, being in the house, I really started thinking, like, I need to understand what happened to me because I need to understand what, what did I experience? You know, what exactly was all of this, you know, and even with the dynamic between me and my ex-husband, even the, you know, trying to understand all of this, because from the experience of going through the police, going through the, you know, the courts and, and going through everything, I needed to understand the root of domestic violence. So, and what I felt was understanding it through the brain was really just starting there. And so I, contacted an online research academy called Polygence, where they actually market to children. But I was able to um, successfully enroll as a student there because it was for all ages. And I had this amazing mentor, Isabella, who was a neuroscience graduate. And well, she's a grad student. And she allowed me to and guided me to do the scientific process. And so for the first time, you know, I've done, I've done therapy. I've done uh, beyond this point, I've done therapy. I've done, you know, the women's shelters where we're learning about power and control will. However, when I did this scientific research and they were talking about the brain and talking about in correlation to domestic violence and what's happening was the first time I felt validated. The first time that I felt understood and I felt heard and talking about certain things that take place within, uh, the brain within neuroscience. And for me, it allowed me to explore the dynamics of domestic violence. See, I, I knew my experience. I knew what I went through, but I felt that to scientifically be able to prove that this is what's happening. So what I did was through 
doing research, doing uh, researching case studies, researching all sorts of scientific literature reviews. I ended up also interviewing a multitude of people from children to former police officers, sociologists, psychologists, you know, all these amazing different people and find, and find out how domestic violence impacted their life throughout their profession. So then talking about my experience, I was able to, to conduct this research and the outcome is the book, Neuroscience, the Ecosystem of Domestic Violence. And so with that book, what I did was I was able to not only talk about the brain and talk about the neuroscience and, and what I discovered is that, you know, if there's in the brain, there's something called the limbic system. And part of the of the brain is in that limbic system is the amygdala, the hippocampus, the thalamus, gland, and whatnot. If there is malfunction in that part or emotional dysregulation, it can lead to a person becoming more violent. If there is damage in what is called in the prefrontal cortex, there's possibility for a person to become violent. And in the brain, when you see there's grooves, it is called ridges and the gyrus. If there is what's particularly uh, called gray matter, if there is the reduction of gray matter can also lead to the men mental illness actually, and which is correlated with schizophrenia. So these are things that I was able to research and, and to find out, which also led to understanding that it was a greater impact of, it wasn't just between me and my ex-husband, that this was something bigger than us, that it was really how society handles domestic violence. And so what I did was I talked about, I compared it to an ecosystem. And, you know, and as far as biological terms, we, you know, it's considered organisms that all pretty much are interconnected. You know, hence a case in point, you know, you have the sun that pretty much helps everything grow with the sun, whether it's the trees and whatnot. These trees, when the wind blows, it gives us shade, it keeps us cool and whatnot. Same concept with domestic violence, that it does start in the brain. Because what I want to make a point is that the root of the domestic violence abuse is within the abuser. It's not within the victim, it's within the abuser, because the abuser is inflicting pain onto the victim. And so there was a lot of information talking about, you know, how one, you know, is this a socioeconomic issue? Is this a, gen a genetic issue? Is this a nature versus nurture? There's, is there an environmental influence? There's all these different impacts. One of the things that we did find out uh, from a batter's intervention program coordinator was that abuser starts off as a victim themselves from being abused. And then the course changes into them becoming this abuser. So from the ecosystem, I, I basically compare the, the, uh, the brain to that atoms, the emotions and actions to the molecules, the cells, to the, to the people, which was the abuser, the victim, and then introducing, as I called earlier, the victim defendant. And that's a new word that people do not, are not familiar with, where again, you know, people will say that it doesn't, you don't look like a victim because you're fighting back. There's a, stereo, there's a stereotype there. So now we're reintroducing this victim defender or reintroducing. So all the way to where I've, you know, talked about how entertainment shapes our lives, even with schools where there's higher education has hid incidents, you know, that's happened on their campus. All the way to how Congress makes decisions for, and this is for American society, but how Congress makes a decision and make the laws that impact domestic violence 
all the way to where society, the historical aspect of how women have been viewed and also and combining it with the science talking about the Darwin's, you know, survival of the fittest, you know, comparing that that study that even though, you know, you will hear this, the term nice guys finish last and that there is a stereotype that women go for this particular guy. Well, the guys who are these nice guys, they pretty much are dying out because we're getting the ones who are the the. I'll say the badass, quote unquote, the guy with the car, the guy with the most money, the the guy who can be the protector, what what have you. But we're looking at the nicer guys as the weaker guys, and then we're and they're I want to say quote unquote extinct or becoming extinct. So it's you're seeing more narcissistic men, you're seeing more toxicity, you're seeing a lot of things are occurring nowadays that people don't understand that are really tying into the narcissism, psychopathy, Machiavellianism, even with relationship choices. So with this book, I really wanted to hone in and understand that there are a lot of studies that have been conducted over for decades, and yet it's not in the court system. It's not where the Congress, why are these studies not with the courts, where the courts are making rulings to help, they're supposed to protect victims and victims are coming out feeling re-victimized. So it really created a, a dig, like a really deep hole for me to really understand, going through the rabbit hole, understanding that there is as complex as domestic violence is, we need a complex solution because the restraining order is not the end all be all. And it's not a, it's not a simplified answer. Let me kind of jump in here. So Based on your research, what could be potential solutions? As you mentioned, it's a lot broader than just doing one thing. It's something that needs to be tackled on a number of different fronts. But what would you say could be possible solutions to reduce the horrifying rate of domestic violence uh, cases in this country? I think that, for one, domestic violence cases need to be treated as homicide cases with law enforcement, because there are a lot of times the officers bring rookie cops who are new to the force and don't understand the dynamic of what's happening. And so if you have a, a homicide case, you know, you're trying to figure out who's this person, how does this connect to this person, the time and place and things of that sort. When you understand there are multiple players for an abuser to be an abuser, there has to be a multitude of players involved, including enablers. And that could be family, friends, whatnot. And so you have these people in place who are also helping the abuser and justify the abuser's actions that's inflicting pain on this victim. But police officers are not seeing that dynamic. They're only seeing these two couples in this incident. And with, and also, I'll say this, they're not seeing who's, they need to understand who's the victim in this situation and who's the abuser. And that's where the medical field, the mental health professionals, the scientists who have conducted these studies need to have to be involved because you're only there because of the law. This is the law. This is what the law says, X, Y, and Z. But you don't know who's the victim here. That's where the trouble is. And we need someone who has those set of eyes who has that set of education to determine, okay, who is the victim here? And instead of arresting the victim, get them the help they need and, and hold these abusers accountable. Know what to look for when the abusers are getting caught because they're turning on the charm. 
they're trying to make sure that you don't see the side that the victim has seen because they're wolves in sheep's clothing. That's number one. Two, I feel that to have the enablers arrested because if say if there was a murder, you know, they would be considered accessories either before, during, after the fact. Well, before the fact, these are, this is the abuse. So they are part of this just as much as this abuser. You know, if you're not trying to help this abuser get the help that they need, then you're being part of the problem. You know, there needs to be a more hone in and, and also having the, the batter's programs needing to be more than six weeks. Need to have inpatient because we need to understand what is happening with these victims for them to be so violent and to and be feeling comfortable being violent with their spouses or their significant others. I've also said this even with the courts that the medical professionals, the scientists, the psychologists, all of these people need, also need to be involved where the, the laws are being made, where the court cases are, because again, you're having judges who don't know these people's mindsets. And for the court to be involved with so many human, humanistic behaviors, with well, all of these cases, you need to know what exactly are you dealing with. With, and, and so I think that all of these things is a start, but the ultimate thing is making sure there are programs and resources in place to have victim, to have help for victims, you know, because it's like, okay, we have the restraining order, well, go to a shelter. But if that shelter is not available that night and you have to go to another county, there's no, how do you get to that county? There's no there's no shuttle bus to get to that county. So it's a lot, there's a lot of gaps that needs to close in order to help that victim. Because it's not just that, again, when you get the restraining order, it's not the end all be all. There's a life after the abuse and is trying to pick up all the pieces that were destroyed, you know, after something like horrific like that, you're trying to put your life back together. And you know, it's trying to walk and talk all over again, trying to figure out who you are again, trying to become stable, financially stable, emotionally stable. And you're having to do this all in this time. And I feel that with society, we're not even allowed at the time to even grieve that because everything is hustle and bustle and trying to work and do all these things that we can't even take the time out for ourselves. So it's a lot of things that this society that, American culture has to do to really make us safer for victims, but also making the abuser held accountable. I agree with you. Healing takes time and it's not something that happens within, you know, five minutes. Yes, you might be out of that situation, but that doesn't mean that you're recovered, that you're healed, that you're, I, I guess you're never really back to being the person you were before, which leads me to my next question. Now, obviously, Luckily, you survived. You got out of this situation. How do you now handle relationships, romance? How has your, your own approach toward dating somebody new or even allowing anyone that close to you again, how has that changed? Oh, dramatically. You know, for me, it's a friend of mine and I talked about this years ago where it's almost like it gives you a sixth sense in a way where if I see an abuser, I can see it coming. And it's like, oh, no, I know what you're about. You know, I definitely have my guard up because of my experience. 
you know, and for me, what I've done since everything has taken place, since trying to come, just getting my life together, focusing on the healing for myself, but also the healing for my children. Because people don't also realize that the children are also caught in this because they having to love both their parents when which one is an abuser and one is the victim of the situation and trying to make a safe space for them to feel comfortable saying, you know, how they feel and creating that environment. You know, so for me, my my thing is, it's been focusing on building my life back together and building my career and building, you know, what I want to do for myself because so many years have been taken away and it's been because of this result of this abusive marriage that I want my life to start. And I want to be able to focus, transition my focus from dating to building something for, for me and for them. So like I there have been a couple of suitors, but my thing is I know I'm not ready. You know, when I started dating my ex-husband, I, w- I wasn't ready to be in that relationship because I was grieving my mother and I needed, to, I should have never been in the relationship. And so this time I'm taking all of this time for myself and saying this, I'm not ready for any type of relationship. If someone comes into my life, that's great, but you only coming in to help build with me. You're not taking away. And so that's where, you know, I am with it. And so it's, my focus is is my family and and building my life back. With your research, do you think that people like your ex husband could potentially be helped? It depends. I've you know I've heard about you know narcissism being uh, untreatable, incurable, but I do feel that if people actually start researching the brain and actually researching brains with abnormalities, I think there is a potential to see if there's some healing. But I do think there's more research that needs to be had and more discussions need to be had to see what that looks like. Danielle Patrice, I am so grateful for you, for your honesty, for sharing something so deeply intimate. I would like to give you um, a brief opportunity to speak about your book and to speak about other resources that uh, people might be able to obtain Would you mind telling us a little bit more about the book, where people can get it, how they can learn more, and what other resources they could potentially harness? So just to give a quick summary, Neuroscience, the Ecosystem of Domestic Violence. It is a book that really talks about domestic violence from the ground up. It is soup to nuts. And this is an opportunity to understand what survivors, what victims, victim defendants have gone through and experienced. You may not care about me as a person, but there's someone you may know who is a victim or may be victimized and you need to know what to do and how you can help them. So you can go on amazon.com or you can go on barnesandnoble.com. Books are strictly online and you can research and and see the story for yourself. It's not a tell-all, but you can hear people's uh, interviews or read their interviews. You can read the case studies that I talk about and hopefully this can save a life too. I think uh, if anything, if you have a chance to Google domestic violence shelves, because even though it's local, they're they're national. So whatever it, wherever you are in your state, in your city, if you can, you can look up different organizations. There's, you know, one, I will say one that particularly helped me was uh, grow. And I, I'm not sure they're 
operating anymore, but they were in Virginia, New Jersey. There's a lot of organizations that are able to help. Uh, the National Coalition to End Domestic Violence is one of them. Uh, New Jersey, again, like again, I'm from New Jersey, so New Jersey Coalition to End Domestic Violence as well. You have to really, unfortunately, it's one of those situations where you really have to research and, and find your local chapters and find your local, you know, your local organizations and programs. But I will say the information is out there. And I will say that you can go to your nearest court or to your nearest police station. They are equipped with start with domestic violence information. But if you, I'll say this, if people aren't able or don't feel comfortable doing that, you can reach out to me, you know, if you have a question about it, um, and I do with Instagram, uh, speak Danielle Patrice. If you have questions about it, because people are scared and, and are not aware of how to handle these types of situations. So, but if you can't Google, or if you don't feel comfortable, please feel free, because I'm very transparent when it comes to domestic violence. Thank you so much. And I'm definitely going to share the contact information in our show notes. So anyone interested in reaching out to Danielle Patrice directly can do so. As a final question for today, I would like to throw this huge word in the room that might be too big an animal to tackle, really. It's the word forgiveness. And I am not sure if that is something that can be applicable in this situation. But would you say that you could ever forgive your ex-husband for what he did to you? You know, honestly, I don't even focus on the forgiveness. I focus on finding peace within myself because, you know, people throw around forgiveness, you know, forgive them. But I need to be able to be at peace with myself and feel the peace that I need. You know, if I'm at peace, the forgiveness will fall in line. So until so for that journey right now, it's about finding my peace, my inner peace with myself. I love that beautiful closing words. Thank you, Danielle Patrice, very, very, very much for your honesty, for your openness, and for sharing your story with us today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. As we conclude this powerful episode on domestic violence with Danielle Patrice, I want to express my deepest gratitude to her for sharing her story so openly in such a raw and genuine fashion. That takes guts. Sharing something so personal and so painful, that's brave. And her story is a narrative of strength, survival, and the courage to break free from the chains of abuse. If you have a little bit of time to spare, maybe a little bit of money to spare, please check the show notes to find out how you can get your hands on Danielle Patrice's book to support her advocacy work and further research. The show notes are also where you can learn how you can follow Danielle Patrice's journey because luckily her story is far from being over. Now I know today is the day of love, but on this Valentine's Day, let Danielle Patrice's journey serve as a reminder that love should never be synonymous with fear. And relationships should be sources of support, love, joy, encouragement, not sources of pain. We hope this episode sparks conversations, fosters empathy, and encourages those who may be facing similar challenges to seek help, 
If you or someone you know is in need of support, domestic violence related or otherwise, resources are available. Reach out to local organizations, hotlines, or friends and family who can provide assistance. You may also contact us at any time by calling 864-501-5033 or by sending us an email to info at thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. We will try to help and we will try to get you in touch with somebody who can help you. Remember, you are not alone and there is strength in seeking help. We here at Thoughtvolution stand with you. Now, thank you for joining us on this heartbreaking but with a big silver lining kind of journey. We believe in the power of storytelling to inspire change and foster understanding. If you found this episode impactful, please share it with others. Together we can break the silence surrounding domestic violence. And if you have a story to tell, please go to thoughtvolutionpodcast.com and fill out our intake form. It would be a gift to have you on. Our website is also the place for you to find out a bit more about me, the show, to order yourself some cool merch, and to revisit previous podcast episodes. All of the episodes from season one are online, so go check them out. Until next time, my dear Thoughtvolutionists, take care of yourselves and each other. Happy Valentine's Day, and may your love be a beacon of light and kindness. I love you lotsies.